Well, as I said, any given Sunday, there is nowhere I'd rather be than, than right here. Um, but this particular Sunday <laughs> presents us with a challenge. One of the defining pillars of our church is expositional preaching, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through books of the Bible, explaining and applying God's word. And uh, we've been working our way through Exodus, and, and it's been rich. I've really loved it. I've, I've been pleasantly surprised every week to see Christ and his gospel kind of weaved through every page. Um, but most often when you see Exodus preached, um, it's often Exodus 1 to 20. Um, we kind of go from, you know, through the, the Exodus and into the Ten Commandments, and let's just call that good. And, uh, or, or maybe there's like three sermons to take us from, you know, chapter 21 through to the end of the book. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that necessarily, um, but here at Redemption, we are suckers for punishment, aren't we? Um, and I'm sorry, I just, I'm not good at turning down a challenge, even to my own detriment. So we're starting a new series this morning, The Lord in the Law, and we're, we're going after it. We're going into the nitty gritty. Um, and, uh, and so it's going to take a little bit of work on my part, on your part, as we dig through these laws. We've talked about the, the Mosaic Covenant, how this has been replaced by Christ, so it doesn't doesn't apply to us directly, um, but I think there's a lot we can learn as we look at it. Uh, and uh, this, these next few chapters, um, chapter 21 through 24, uh, are called the Book of the Covenant. That's, that's what it's called in, in chapter 24. It gives it that name. Um, this is the law code that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai for the people of Israel. And, uh, and so we're just going to continue verse by verse um, through this section. I'll be honest with you, um, when I first kind of mapped out Exodus last, uh, last year about this time, saying, where are we going? Um, what, what sections are going are gonna, to, am I going to preach? How long is this going to take? Uh, I looked at this date on the calendar and went, I don't know what I'm going to preach when I get there. Um, I was afraid that I would end up standing up here in front of you and open my Bible and have nothing to say. But I have this conviction, this trust that all Scripture... Say it with me, all Scripture, do it again, all Scripture is breathed out by God, is profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be fully equipped. So I believe, I have a conviction that God desires to work among us through Old Testament laws. And I invite you to join me in that expectation and hope, and uh, we'll press into this together. Ironically, um, since we started Exodus last January, this is the first time that I sat down to a passage I'd kind of mapped out, and I had to break it up. There's too much. There's going to be two sermons, not one. Uh, I fought that temptation a few times. This time I couldn't. Um, so there was more here than I knew what to do with. Um, but would you pray with me as we, as we move into this? Uh, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is trustworthy and true. Thank you that we don't have to go hunting through fallible documents written by men trying to somehow find you, trying to somehow discern what is true about you and what is not, but that we have your word written down um, by men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit, guarded by you, breathed out by you, that you are faithfully revealed in this word, even through obscure texts, even through passages that we wouldn't typically go to for a, a coffee mug or a heartwarming morning devotion. And yet, God, we trust that all of this book is for our edification. And so, God, we're coming to your word um, 
Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law. We need you to be at work this morning um, through your word, by your Holy Spirit. Uh, So God, um, show us. Show us your truth. Show us your goodness uh, this Sunday uh, and and every Sunday to come as as we attempt to faithfully uh, look at your truth uh, and be changed by it, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we get into this, I just want to warn you, um, there are some things today that may not sit well with you, and that'll be true in the weeks to come. Um, They're just going to rub a little bit on our modern sensibilities, the way we do things in our culture. Um, I think as we take a closer look, we might be able to take the edge off of some of those, Um, but there are some things we're going to have to wrestle through. But I also think there's some just surprisingly relevant truths that we can draw from this if we're... uh, careful about it if we look discerningly at it. So take out your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter, or Genesis, Exodus chapter 21. We're not, we're not going right back. Um, and uh, this, this section, these laws come in kind of different chunks. They're, they're somewhat organized. Um, this first section is called the laws of, of life, is maybe what I've titled it. These are the laws having to do with, um, with life and the the laws that require death penalty. Um, If you don't have a Bible on you, just go ahead and slip up your hand. One of our ushers will get one to you. We want you to have God's Word open on your lap. Uh, I I know I just had like three weeks, two weeks off to to think about things. I still have nothing to say. Um, I still only have this book. So um, I want you to be able to see God's Word for yourself. And and my goal is just to tell you what, what God has already said. But as we look at this, um, getting into this, this book of the covenant, we're going to see this morning these, these laws having to do with slavery, these offenses that cause death and, and deserve death. But before we get to that, I think we just want to camp at verse 1. I mean, we just can't ignore um, this, this freight train that hits us right off the bat. Look with me, chapter 21, verse 1. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. It's a big deal. The first thing I want us to see here is the Lord is our master. He's given these Ten Commandments. As we mentioned, as we were kind of working through the Ten Commandments, they're actually very general. They're very vague. They're broad stroke commands. Um, Really, they tell us more about God's character than they do about specific legal details. But these are more specific. These are legal rulings. This book of the covenant, this is supplemental to the Ten Commandments. It's kind of explaining how do you apply these Ten Commandments. The word rules there um, probably could be better translated judgments. Um, These are the rulings that you'll set before the people. And so the book of the covenant is is like case law. If you're familiar with kind of the legal world, um, when a judge looks at a at a case and he's trying to decide how do I rule on this, he'll he'll look at the law that applies and ask, well, how was it how was it applied in other similar situations, and, and kind of extrapolate from there. If the law has been used this way, then that's the way I should use it again here. And so that's what these are are very specific situations. Um, But they weren't meant to stay there. They were meant to be kind of extrapolated on and used by the the judges and the leaders as they made their their rulings. Um, Kind of saying, this is how it's been dealt with in the past. This is how God says we ought to use this law. So I had to use it in a similar fashion. But I want us to notice 
first and foremost, as we look at this, these, these rulings, there's a basic assumption behind this in giving the book of the law at all. And it's that the Lord is a master. He's our master. Who gets to talk this way? Who is it that gets to say, here are the rules? It's a master. It's one who rules. Our Western society, we have so elevated this idea of, of personal freedom. That's the highest possible good, right? I mean, yeah, we can point at our, at our brothers and sisters to the south, but we, we feed off that. We get this idea in our minds. It's all about personal freedom. And so we read through Exodus and we think God has set them free. He's rescued them so that now they can do what they want. They can realize their dreams. They can be their own person. They, they don't have to be ruled by anyone anymore. Now they're free. And that's not the case. That's not the case at all. Right from the beginning, when the Lord sent Moses and Aaron in, he said, go and speak to Pharaoh. Exodus 7.16, he said, you shall say to him, Moses and Aaron, you shall say to Pharaoh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. And that word serve is directly related to the word slave. That they might be my slaves. Not your slaves, they're my slaves. They weren't set free. They weren't set free at all. They gained a new master. They were redeemed. They were bought from one to the next. They're not their own people now. They are God's people, and there are implications to that. He makes these demands of them. He says, as my people, this is how you'll live. We often get confused, I think. I want to tread carefully here. I want to draw a clear line for you. We know that salvation is by grace and grace alone. It's not based on anything that we do, but it's, but it's just by faith, by grace. And because of that, we then make the next step in thinking, therefore, God makes no demands of us. It doesn't matter what we do. We easily begin to think that God just kind of sets us free then. And it's gloriously true. And I don't want to diminish that at all. That God saved Israel and God saves us completely based on grace, not based on who we are or what we've done, but by His gracious generosity, but that doesn't mean God doesn't make demands of us. God saved Israel so that they might serve him, so that they might be his unique and holy people on the earth to live according to his law. And God saved you. God has saved us as the church, yes, by grace, not because of our good lives, but to holiness, so that we would live transformed lives. i just throw a couple of verses out here that, that just kind of put this in front of us. 2 Corinthians 5.15 He, that's Jesus, died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Why did Jesus die? So that you would no longer live for yourself, but would live for Him. There's an ongoing effect here. That's why Jesus saved you. Ephesians 5, 25, 26. Um, Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her 
that he might sanctify her. He might set her apart, make her different, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word. Titus 2.14, Jesus, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So if you're a Christian, if you've been saved, you have been saved by God, not just from something, but also to something, for Something And that something is, is a joyful, worshipful obedience to a new master. That's why Jesus puts forward the question, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? It's, it's incoherent. What does Lord mean? It means master. What do you do with a master? You, you do what he says. Don't call me Lord unless you're going to do what I say. Jesus as Savior and Jesus as master come together. You can't separate the two. It's a logical impossibility. You can't have him as Savior and not Lord. To have him as Lord is to walk in obedience to him. Josh and I have been reading this, this book by an old guy. My, my, my uh, motto for books is, is debtor the better. The older the author, the better the book. That's just, if that book is still around. So J.C. Ryle, uh, his book, Holiness, I highly recommend it. Just rich. Um, and you'll get a taste of that. Um, not always gentle. You'll get a taste of that. Um, let, me, let me read a, a passage from, uh, from the chapter we read just this last week. He says, now, let us make serious inquiry. What does your Christianity cost you? Very likely, it costs you nothing. Very probably, it neither costs you trouble, nor time, nor thought, nor care, nor pains, nor reading, nor prayer, nor self-denial, nor conflict, nor working, nor labor of any kind. Now mark carefully what I say. Such a religion as this will never save your soul. It will never give you peace while you live, nor hope while you die. It will not support you in any affliction nor cheer you in the hour of death. A religion which costs nothing is worth nothing. Awake before it's too late. Awake and repent. Awake and be converted. Awake and believe. Awake and pray. Rest not until you can give a satisfactory answer to my question, what does it cost you? He's not saying you're saved by works. He's not saying you've somehow purchased your salvation by that cost, not in the least. What he's saying is that true salvation is submission to the Lord as master. It's a a life lived to reflect that. And, and, And if you've not, as Jesus says, taken up your cross and actually followed him, then you can't be his disciple. You you just can't be. His disciple means learner, follower. A religion, a faith, a Christianity, as you may call it, that is not marked by growing obedience to Christ? Doesn't strive after growing in Christ-likeness? Is no religion, is no faith, is no Christianity at all. Don't put your confidence in that kind of a faith that has no evidence. Read James. James asks in in, in 2.14, What good is it, my brothers, if if someone has faith but does does not have works? Can such a faith save him? And his answer is 
No. James 2.17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Not that works add to the faith, but, but works shows you what kind of faith it is. Is it a living faith? Is it a true faith or is it a dead faith? A false, hollow faith that doesn't produce obedience doesn't save. Calvin puts it so well in his response to the Council of Trent. He says, It is therefore faith alone which justifies, which saves. So faith alone which saves. And yet the faith which justifies is never alone. He uses the illustration of the the sun and saying the sun warms the earth and the warmth comes from the sun, but that warmth is never separate from the light. And so the the faith, we're, we're saved by faith alone, but true saving faith never comes alone. It's always accompanied by by obedience, by a transformed life. Do you have that kind of faith? A faith that that is transformed in invisible, tangible ways, the, the way that you live, the way that you think. And if not, don't, don't rest before God. Don't, don't get comfortable before God. But plead with Him in, in fear and, and repentance that He might give you that kind of faith, a truly transformed heart leading to a life of, of joyful submission and, and obedience to Him. He's our master. So God rescues Israel from this cruel, merciless slavery from Egypt. And he makes them his slaves. And he gives them these commands on how they should live as his slaves. Let's let's dig into what some of those commands are. Uh, Of course, Israel just came out of slavery. And so God's first instructions for them are about slavery Um, Let me read verses 2 to 11, and then we'll unpack it a little bit. What I want us to see here uh, is is very parallel to what we just saw. He is our master. Here we see we are his slaves. We're the Lord's slaves. Let me read verses 2 to 11. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year he shall go free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife, of her, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if, he, if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or doorpost. And his master shall bore, the ear, bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since she has broken, he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. 
And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Well, that's a little bit shocking that that's even here, isn't it? As I said, these are some things that are going to rub us a little bit the wrong way. Israel has just come out of this horrific slavery under Pharaoh. You would think the law then about slavery would be don't. Slavery, no. Evil, period. Next law, please. What's he doing? And isn't this exactly where our atheist friend would turn us and say, look, this God of yours that you say is so good, he condones slavery. What a wicked God. What do we do with this? How do we understand this? There's a couple of ways. One, one answer is to say God makes rules that kind of govern it, but he's not condoning it. Uh, and so just because God has rules to govern, he's, he's slowly working out of slavery and the trajectory of these things will come to, to slaves being set free. And there's some truth to that. Uh, and we'll see that certainly as we get into Paul and seeing how the gospel plays out. And it is, in fact, the gospel in the end that abolishes slavery in the West. But as we look at this passage, I don't even think it's necessary to make that argument. The first thing we have to realize is when we use the word slave, we, we have this cultural idea. We go immediately to our understanding from slavery in the South 200 years ago. And that was a completely wicked enterprise. Horrible, horrific, evil. And, and actually, though the people who, who defended that slavery in their day, they would have turned to these passages and said, look, slavery is good and right. We can do this. God says so. It's here in Exodus 21. I think as we walk through this, maybe a little more clarity now with some years gone by, we can see that Everything about that slavery is clearly condemned here in Exodus. It's, it's totally forbidden. When the Old Testament uses the word slave, it's not talking about what you're thinking about. You need to create a new category this morning. You have to understand that, that we're using the same word, but we're not talking about the same thing. And, and the translators wrestle with this. There's a, there's a little tidbit in the opening pages of your ESV. The translator saying, we're not sure if this is the right word to use anymore because there's so much baggage and there's so much misunderstanding, but, but it seems to be the right word, but understand that we're wrestling with the, the, the implications here. Now, that doesn't mean that there weren't evil men in that day who, who used this, even this biblical system uh, and, and twisted it and did horrific things. I'm, I'm certain there were. But let's allow the Bible to speak for itself and let's see exactly what this law allows for and, and what it is that, that these verses are talking about. So first, he's, he opens it saying, when you buy a Hebrew slave. Okay, well, now we're buying and selling people as property, right? We're, we're immediately into the South, aren't we? No. Now, slavery in Israel um, was almost always what we would call an indentured servant, it's someone who has agreed to work for a certain period of time to pay off a debt. That's what it means to buy a slave. You, you, would, you would pay their debt and they would serve you to pay that off to you. There are actually three ways that you could become a slave in ancient Israel. Exodus 22.3 says that if a thief is caught stealing and he cannot pay for what he stole, 
then he could be sold into slavery to work off the debt that he owed. Secondly, you could sell yourself into slavery. Maybe you had taken out a loan that you can't repay, or, or maybe you're just broke. You can't put food over your head, or food over your head. That's not a good place. You can't put food in your stomach or a roof over your head. You can't, you can't provide for yourself. Where do you go? You, you, you don't have social security. You don't, you don't have free health care. Um, you might sell yourself to the farmer down the road. And, and remember, we're not talking about factories here. We're, we're talking about family farms and subsistence farming. The third way that you could become a slave is if your parents sold you. And that sounds horrible. But again, this was most often done out of mercy and love. A family that is poor and unable to provide, this is, this is, this is like ancient adoption. Would you, would you take my son and, and care for him? Would you feed him? We can't, we can't feed another mouth. And he would become part of that family and have a better life. And so all slaves, no matter how they came into slavery, um, were to be considered part of the household. They're part of the family. The father of the household was now responsible to provide for them, to, to care for them, to give them all that they needed. As we look at the uh, verse, verse 10, we see that if a man buys a, a slave as a, a wife, um, he, he's to provide for her clothing and, and food and intimacy and not diminish that at all, or she goes free. If you don't provide for your slave, they go free. Slaves celebrated the Sabbath and the feasts and the festivals as part of the family. And notice what's missing from how you become a slave. How is the entire system in the West built? It was kidnapping. It was stealing men and women and children from their homes and transporting them across the ocean and selling them. Let's just skip down to verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, um, you're, you're, if you have an NIV, it's really not clear on that phrase, but I think this is the right rendering. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. So if we're going to judge American slavery, the slave trade in the West, by these laws, every single slave owner executed. That's how much the Bible agrees with the slave trade. Death penalty, every single one. There were no involuntary slaves. In fact, this one will really blow your mind. I had never noticed it before. Deuteronomy 23. You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst, in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him, you shall not wrong him. So if a slave runs away, you don't beat him for escaping or kill him for escaping. In fact, you assume that the master is at fault. You assume that the master gave him good reason to running away, that he was not treated fairly, that he was not dealt with properly, and he stays with you. You care for him. Talk about motivation to treat your slave well. They run away. They're, they're gone. They're lost to you. And finally, how, how long would you serve as a slave? Well, either until they had paid off their debt or six years total. Whichever comes first. 
In the seventh year, you go free for nothing. It's not a lifetime of servitude. This is a contract. And it has an end date. I have a friend in Calgary who, who did a very similar thing to this today in Canada. She wanted to be a nurse. She didn't want to pay for the massive bill of nursing school. So she signed herself over. She sold herself, if you will, to the Canadian military. She said, I'll serve you for nine years and you pay for my schooling. And it works. They do this all the time. It's a very similar agreement in my mind. And look at Deuteronomy 15, 13 and 14. And when you let him go free, this is after that, in that seventh year, when you let him go free, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, out of your wine press. As the Lord God has blessed you, you shall give to him. So you live as part of this family for six years, working on the family farm, having Sabbath and feasts and festivals together fully cared for. If you decide to run away, you go free. And at the end of six years, you walk out with your own small business, seed for crop, livestock for a herd, even some wine for dinner. I've seen hockey contracts worse than this. Um, it, it, was, it was carefully set up, protecting those who were weak, protecting those who were vulnerable and saying, here's how it's going to work. You can't just buy a person and own them. You, you can't do what you want with them. And as we go further through this chapter, you'll see if you, if you knock out the tooth of your slave, he goes free. If you injure him in a permanent way, he walks out. You can't beat him. You don't own him. He's the Lord's servant. And so I just want to reset our thinking on this as we, as we look through, through Exodus. That's, that's what's happening, at least within Israel, at least ideally. This is what God is setting out. Verses 3 and 4 have some particulars. If he comes in single, he goes out single. If he comes in with a wife, he goes out with his wife. Verse 4 is a little more challenging. First read it, I was all kind of geared up for, hey, hey, this is going to hit the sanctity of marriage, right? If if his if his master gives him a wife while he's a slave, then he goes out, ooh, no, without his wife. I'm like, what? God, how do you do that? But this was set up to keep them from kind of gaming the system. If your master gave you a wife while you were a slave, and remember, all marriages at this point were were. Um, you call it arranged marriages. So this was fairly normal that, that your father or your master would put you together with somebody. If your master gave you a wife and you had kids, um, maybe you're in your sixth year and your wife is in her third year. Don't expect that when you go free, she'll go free. She still has her debt to pay. She still has her, her years to work off. And so uh, you, you couldn't game the system in that way. And so you could either buy off her remaining debt and 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 purchase her for, for yourself and set her free. Or you could just wait. She, it'll be six years max. You can wait it out. Or verses five and six present him with a third option. Perhaps he realizes, I had a better life as part of that family working in, in their farm, better than I could ever have on my own. I love my master. I don't want to leave. I had it good there. And there's a, a, some ceremony involved. This was to be done publicly and, and carefully. They were to take him to God. They were to take him to the tabernacle or, or the temple and before a priest. And the owner was to drive an awl, a hole punch, 
through the slave's ear. These guys say with their big stretched out ears, they think they're doing something new. Uh Uh-uh, old school. This has come in and gone out already, guys. Um, But it was committing himself to a lifetime of willing service to the master. I'm yours. And everybody can see it. Marked, I'm yours. It was also commitment by the master. Saying, I'm going to care for this person. I'm going to take them in and make them part of my family and and feed them and, and clothe them. What a beautiful picture. And I don't think we're out of line to, to take a spiritual angle on this. I think there's some application. Some of you grew up in the church. Maybe you're in the process of growing up in the church. And you're here because your mom and dad said you have to be. You don't have a choice. Some of you are here because you feel like you have a debt to pay. It's a duty. I guess I owe it to God. You feel an obligation to to pay down your debt to God, you're you're like that six-year slave. And and if that debt was gone, if that obligation was gone, you'd be gone. This is not your first choice of places to be. This is a duty. And I just want to shoot straight with you. God's not interested. He doesn't want it. He's not into that. He, He doesn't need you to serve Him. He doesn't need you to come here and hold down a chair Sunday morning. You can't pay down your debt one iota, no matter how much you give or how much you serve. And he's not committed to you any more than you are to him. God has no indentured servants. He's not honored by those who who come dutifully to, to pay off what they owe. And he doesn't accept it. To be a true follower of this God, a true Christian... to say, I love my master. I love his household. This right here. I want to give myself for life. I'm willingly, joyfully giving myself to his service. I'm yours. I will entrust myself to his care and give myself to his service. Look what David says in Psalm 40, verse 6. A verse that you probably could just so easily read over and miss it if you don't have this context. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you've given me an open ear. Not an open ear as in I'm listening, an open ear as in you've driven an all through my ear. A life given to him out of love and joy. I'm yours, God. God's not impressed by your sacrifices. God's not impressed by uh, you trying to to serve Him, to give something back to Him. What He wants is an opened ear. What He wants is a life joyfully given. I love you, God. I want to be yours. That's the servant that God accepts. That's the one that He then obligates Himself in return and saying, then I will care for you. I will make you part of my household and put you under my protection and my care forever. Think carefully on that. Is your service to God just trying to pay off a debt to God? Don't, you don't care about Him. If you could leave, you would. He's hoping to get something good back from God. 
Or is it this life given to him out of love? I love my master. I love his household. I want to be with him. I'm going to give myself to you, God. That's what he's after. Verses 7 to 11 go on to speak of women who were sold as slaves for the purpose of marriage. Again, arranged marriages is the norm. So this this wasn't strange uh, then as it would be now. Um, But these laws are written very much in protection of these women. If she didn't please her master or her husband. So uh, I I don't quite grasp how this situation works that a man would buy uh, a slave and also make her his his wife. I'm not sure the cultural setting that would make that necessary, but, but obviously it was happening. If he was to buy her to be a wife, so she's now a slave and a wife, and, and she doesn't please him. I think that most likely means she's found not to be a virgin or she commits adultery. He couldn't just sell her to anyone. Uh, she was to be redeemed. She was to be bought back by her family. And if he bought her for his son, and he didn't, she didn't please his son, he was to treat her as a daughter. He, he's to care for her anyway. He's to take the burden of caring for her for life onto himself. And she was never to be a second-class wife. If he took another wife, which was not what God intended marriage to be, but it was common in those days, um, he couldn't cut back on her food or her clothing or her, her marital rights. That's intimacy. If he did, she could leave. She could go out. She could divorce him and go free. This is, this is remarkable autonomy for a woman, particularly a slave woman in the ancient world. This is unheard of. But these are the, the laws that kind of govern this, this slavery. This is the kind of slavery that God is, is talking about. But more importantly, this is the kind of slave that God desires. Verses 12 to 17 um, moves into laws demanding capital punishment, the death penalty. And I think what we see here is that God demands a pure people. Let me, let me read these verses and I'll show you what I'm looking at. Starting in verse 12. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hands, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. And whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. So the first law here is against murder. And it's stated uh, first in verse 12 and then in verse 14. And the law for murder is that he should die. Uh, This was not the first time this is laid out. Um, Genesis 9-6. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. It's a big deal. That we are image bearers of God. And if you kill one of God's image bearers, you are to be put to death. Now, to be clear, um, we've talked about 
this a few times. Exodus uh, is Mosaic covenant. This is the covenant that, that God made with Israel. We're not Israel, through Moses. And, and this covenant has been, has been replaced, right? It's no longer in effect. The new covenant has, has taken its place. It's been fulfilled. But Genesis 9-6 is not the Mosaic covenant. This is what we call the Noahic covenant. It's the covenant that God made through Noah, not with Israel. There was no Israel yet. This was with all mankind. This covenant has never been replaced. It has never become inactive. It includes things like God's promise never to kill the earth by flood again. So let's be thankful um, that it has not uh, been replaced. So to this day, God's requirement that murder should be punished by the death penalty, I think by due process and proper authority, but by the death penalty. I think this is still applicable today directly. Now, verse 13 has this odd phrase. Uh, if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hands. What does that mean? Um, did, did God give him this person to kill? I think it's just kind of an idiom. It's a, it's a stylistic way of saying um, the opposite of the first part. He didn't lie in wait for him. He, he wasn't planning to kill him. It was an accident. It was coincidental. Um, in the best cases, this, this would be like, you know, you're swinging an axe and the axe head flew off and, and somebody died. Um, this is a tragic camel accident. Um, I don't know how this played out, but, but, it, but it's, it's manslaughter, not murder, right? It's coincidental in some way. He didn't plan to kill him. He didn't intend to kill him. Now, in this ancient culture, in the, the, the countries around them, there was an honor culture. And so I was obligated. If you killed my brother, I was obligated to kill you to avenge my brother, regardless of the circumstances, regardless if it was accidental or intentional or not. And so this law is, is to stop that. If it was merely coincidental, um, the family's going to be mad. They're going to want revenge. And so he says, you, I will appoint places for you to flee. And as we get into to, um, Leviticus and, and you get into them settling into the promised land, um, God appointed these cities of refuge, these safe cities. If you kill somebody, you know, you got to run to Didsbury. That's the place um, where you can stand before the judge and you can, and you can stand trial and not, and not be killed uh, in vengeance. But verse 14 picks it back up again. If he runs to this city of refuge, if he tries to hide, but he is guilty of murder, even from the altar of God, he should be taken. There is no safe place. There is nowhere to hide. The murderer must die. Shockingly, the same penalty is given in verse 15 to those who strike their parents and verse 17 to those who curse their parents. That's steep. That's a rough law. Uh, any of you kind of like, e? I don't think I would have made it through like 12 if I was lucky, maybe four. Um, but these two words, strike and curse, uh, they are very strong words. Um, the word strike um, means like beat down. I mean, it's, it's, it's a beating close to death that threatens death. So it's, it's not just a slap or a, or a hit. Um, and curse... Um, is much more than just an angry outburst. You know, a teen might, I hate you, Dad. That's not what we're talking about. The death penalty was for those who, would, who publicly, officially disowned their parents. 
who would completely renounce them. Let it, let it be known in front of all of you that I want nothing to do with my parents. I reject them. That's what this is talking about. Still, um, not, a, not a nice law, the way we see it. Verse 16, we already talked about those who kidnapped people who are in possession of a kidnapped person. All of these were so severe that God said, this person cannot stay in the community. They have to die. They have to be purged. This is God's ordained judgment. And I think this brings us to another principle that we need to understand. God is serious about the purity of his people. He doesn't take sin lightly. It's no small thing. There's a point of of rebellion where God says, this person must be removed from the community called by my name. I am your master, you are my slaves. And at some point of rebellion, you're no longer part of this community. You're put out by death. The people of God were to be a holy people, set apart, different And that purity was to be protected. And as the church, as the new people of God, we're also commanded to protect the purity of the church. We're not enacting a church death penalty. Um, Joel and Tara are like, what did we just sign up for? (laughs) That was not in the bylaws when we became members. Um, But we do, when necessary, remove people from the fellowship of the church. Some people find this really hard to take. Some people buck against this and say, how dare you speak to me about my faith? This is my faith. It has nothing to do with you. Don't judge me. Well, we get that a lot, don't we? Jesus gives us these simple instructions. Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. You've settled it. Praise God. If he repents, you can reconcile. That's the goal. If he doesn't listen, continue to pursue it. Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen even to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That is to say, put him out of the fellowship. He doesn't belong anymore in the people of God. Now, I think it's interesting. Jesus changes the subject here, and we didn't even notice. He's not talking anymore about the severity of the sin. He doesn't even mention what the sin is. He gives no parameters on what kind of sin. The issue here is a lack of repentance, a refusal to repent. None of us is without sin. And there's actually, on the other hand, there's no sin so serious that it excludes you from the fellowship. Yep, whatever thing is coming to your mind, really that? Yeah, there is no sin so serious that it excludes you from the fellowship so long as there is genuine, and that word genuine is significant, repentance. But if you call yourself a Christian, well, you continue on in unrepentant sin. It's the duty of the church at some point to say, no. 
That's not what we're doing here. That's not what life in this community looks like. That's not what life as a Christian looks like. The Christian life, the life of the the new creation is marked by repentance over sin, brokenness over sin. Loving obedience to the Master, growing Christ-likeness. Same thing Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 5. Um, Let me pick up at verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people. And apparently there was some misunderstanding because he clarifies. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you'd have to go out of the world. But I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? There's the answer to Don't judge me. Who are you to judge me? Uh, Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God will judge those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So we ought to be in the world. We ought to be rubbing shoulders with people who don't live like believers because they're not believers. We don't expect them to live like believers. But the game changes for someone who calls himself a Christian. Someone who bears the name of brother. If they continue on in unrepentant sexual morality or greed or idolatry or reviling or drunkenness or dishonesty, any sin, I think, is what this is going after. Paul says don't even eat with them. To to eat together was, was to have personal fellowship. So it's not like, well, we can't, we, you know, we can't go to Tim Hortons today because Joe's there. But, but no, don't, don't have this ongoing, close, personal fellowship with them. There's, there's all of a sudden a distance. There's a break in that fellowship. Purge the evil person from among you. That's rough. This is hard. This is why, this is why people don't want to be elders right, right there. Because this is sticky stuff. It's painful. It happens painstakingly and gently. It happens in love. The goal is to see the person come to repentance, to rejoin the fellowship. We, we, we are not eager to ever, you know, we're cutting you off, we're excommunicating you. Ha ha. No, we want to see people walking with Christ. We don't relish this. But if there's no repentance, it's the responsibility of the church to lovingly say, This is not what the life of a believer looks like. We don't see evidence in your life of of ongoing work of Christ. And and so we're no longer going to call you part of the church because as far as we can tell, you're not part of the church. We don't want you to be comfortable living in the delusion that you're saved when you're not. That would be an evil thing to do to somebody. This is the most loving course of action, painful as it is. Helping the sinner see repentance is essential. 
Walking with Christ means obedience, means growing in Christ's likeness. If that's not happening, you're not walking with Christ. And we don't want you, brother, to, to stand before the Lord and have him say, Who are you? Well, didn't, didn't we call you Lord, Lord, and do many mighty works in your name and have him say, I, didn't, I never knew you? We don't want to see that. So lovingly, we're going to call people to repentance and even if necessary, communicate clearly, you're not part of the church so far as we can tell. God is the ultimate judge. But we need to protect the purity of the church. He is our master. We're his lifelong slaves. And he calls us to purity as a people. Now, there's, there's more laws on capital punishment that we're just not going to get to today. We'll, we'll get into those next week. Um, there's a lot to unpack in the days ahead. But as we close, I want to go back to this section on slaves. See this, this picture of the, the willful slave with his ear pierced by the all saying, I'm, I'm yours, God. I think that is a beautiful picture of what we're called to. I think we ought to kind of run our life through that grid. And yet, we're going to very quickly see our own failure. We're going to very quickly see, maybe I don't belong in this community. Maybe I've done things, looking at these laws, even the laws deserving death. Jesus said, you have heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother is subject to judgment. That's me. I haven't, I haven't lived as that joyful, obedient slave. And so these laws ought to turn us again to see God, to see His grace, to see the wrath that we deserve, and then to see another slave, another servant. It's Jesus. Philippians says He took on the form of A servant, the word there is doulos, it should be translated slave. Jesus took on the form of a slave and was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was not willing only to have his ear pierced, but his hands and his feet and his side. He gave his life in joyful obedience and stood condemned in the place of sinners. That we who are absolutely unworthy, who could never pay our debt, could be welcomed into the household of God. It's only through Christ. It's only through God's perfect servant that we have the privilege, the joy of being part of his household, coming in under his care and his protection as slaves who are then made children and even heirs in his household. 